Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to One Her Game. In this episode, I speak with professional ironwoman turned record-breaking adventurer, Bonnie Hancock. It was just a regular visit to the library when Bonnie Hancock picked up a book that would change her life. It was a book about a woman who circumnavigated Australia in a ski. It planted a seed in Bonnie that she just couldn't shake. An idea, an adventure, a challenge, a near-impossible task. Take eight months out of your life, out of your cruise life, Battle sharks, crocodiles, monstrous seas the size of two-storey houses, hypothermia, the lot. And do something no woman or man has ever done in the process. An iron woman background certainly gave Bonnie that base. She wore the famous Nutrigrain cosy with her name on the back for nine years before giving it up and finding a love for what was then her least favourite discipline, the ski. But let's wind it back and start with a sun-kissed, beach-loving girl from Sawtell growing up with the sand between her toes and her three sisters by her side. Oh, dearie me, I was barefoot walking around the streets of Sawtell with my friends, uh, surfing at Sawtell Surf Club, uh, doing nippers. Whenever I could out on my little paddleboard, I have three sisters and I just wanted to be exactly like my older sisters. So George is the eldest, Courtney's <laughs> next and Indy's the young one. And um, yeah, we were just down at the beach whenever and whenever we could. And I had, I was had a really nice childhood. So um, it, was, it was a sheltered childhood. So when I came to the Gold Coast at 17, it was almost quite a shock. But um, <laughs> I loved it. I was very lucky. I love that you say you want to be like your sisters because I know your sister Courtney very, very well. Absolutely adore Courtney. But every time I look at you and hear you, I just see Courtney the whole time. I'm like, I can't believe how much you two look alike. And then your mannerisms, the way you talk, everything's the same, right? It's very similar. It's so funny. Like everyone says that we've spent way too much time together, (laughs) having trained together, lived together. Um, Even on the phone, we used to um, play a trick on mum and pretend it was the other one and mum couldn't tell the difference so um, okay I won't feel so bad then not at all we're we're 18 months apart Uh, we're very similar we get on very well and um yeah I've been really lucky to to have an older sister like that my whole life yeah yeah what kind of influence did growing up with three sisters have so having like four girls having this girl squad to grow up with yeah, honestly, it was it was quite empowering. I think, um, you know, coming from a family of, of all girls, I mean, dad, poor dad, it, even the pets we had were female. <laughs> so I remember female dogs, female birds. Like it was just ridiculous. But dad um, got behind us in everything we did. He was a bit of a sports nut as well. He used to love running with us. But in t- saying that, never pushing us, they sort of mm. found that really nice um a balance there between encouraging us and and not pushing us but on the other side of things I guess the difference in having sisters and not brothers 
I would actually sneak into their cupboard and steal their clothes. And I remember sort of <laughs> putting a shirt over the top. I'd have like a tank top or something underneath, walk out of the house and then take the other shirt oh. off. So I used to um, think I was just so awesome stealing my big sister's clothes. And they always found out in the end. <laughs> I love it. You've got three wardrobes, well, four wardrobes really to choose exactly, from, don't you? Exactly. That's pretty cool. Figured that one out. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, what about sport? Were you all into sport or was it just you and Courtney or how did sport come into your life? Yeah, we were all into sport and it's interesting. We all sort of gravitated towards slightly different things. My elder sister, Georgia, uh, ran uh, for New South Wales. So she was an excellent mm. cross-country runner. Indy, the youngest, was more of a board paddler uh, in nippers. Uh, and Courtney and I really liked swimming um, and loved the board as well, but um were probably more of the swimmers of the family. Mm. And uh, around that sort of, I guess, 15, 16, where kids kind of go either way with sport, maybe take it to that sort of next level or, or you know, find other things. That's when Georgia and Indy sort of dropped back a little bit mm. where they kind of stayed active. Um, Courtney and I always kind of knew we wanted to be professional iron women. We used to watch Carla Gilbert when we were young <laughs> run around and just be absolutely obsessed. <laughs> And um, that was always a huge goal for us. So it was around that kind of teenage years. We, we just noticed mm. the difference. And um, But the other two were very talented. Because that was the golden years, wasn't it? Us growing up watching Uncle Toby's and then the Nutrigrain series. Like They were like the real golden years of those uh, of that sport. Um, that, yeah. yeah, would have had a huge impact and obviously did have a huge impact on you too. Absolutely. And I think what was really special was um, around that time, you know, other sports, the female uh, exposure and participation wasn't as big. I mean, Mm. this was the time of the 90s. The Meadow Lee series was huge. And Carla Mm. Gilbert was a household name, Reen Corbett. Mm -hmm. um, You know, there were a bunch of others. So we grew up watching these women run around on the TV every weekend. So if you actually think about it, it was kind of kind of rare in that way. I know swimming had the same with Lisa Curry mm. and Sam Riley, Susie O'Neill. So, but we only saw um, them once every four years, right? It, and we exactly. saw these guys all year round pretty much and mostly yeah, that's in exactly summer. right. And you can't overlook that influence as a child. Mm. You just soak it all in. I remember mm. running around with a broomstick pretending I was ski paddling like – um, you know, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, literally obsessed. So, um, we, we wanted to be Carla Gibbon. She was a wonderful role model and, and still mm. is. And, um, yeah, even when I talk to her now, it's quite surreal. <laughs> so how did you get into it? Did you get into nippers? Was that how you guys got into it? Were you really young getting into it? Yeah, absolutely. So I was five years old, so wow. as young as I could, but even before that, um, I remember dragging a little foamy board out there and mum and dad were like, okay, just chill out. You're not quite old <laughs> enough to go out the back. I said, but Georgia and Courtney are out there. Because um, did they surf? Did your parents surf? Did Were they good swimmers? Were they, you know, ocean people? Well, yeah, well, it's an interesting one. So dad grew up in Tasmania, so very much down there, the winter sport, so cricket. Mm. He was a marathon runner, a very talented runner. Mum grew up in Coffs Harbour, so mum was the surfer. Basketball was big for her too. And we did a bit of that growing up. So mum kind of had the connection with the beach, but I think because we moved by the beach, they wanted us to be safe. Mm. And, um, you know, a big one was that was learning to swim. So Mm. I really didn't like learn to swim classes. My teacher used to force my head under the water. So for me, the beach Mm. was where it was at. Yeah. So started with nippers. Uh, Were you too good straight away? Did you just have that natural skill? I'm thinking the answer is yes. (laughs) 
from what I, I've seen. I, I think we were water babies. I think I think we took to it um, quite young. Um, you know, I know a lot of athletes who are sort of late bloomers and, you know, um, people who become really good around the 18, 19. I must say it was from a young age. We sort of just noticed, um, yeah, that ability in, in the water. Um, and also I think for some reason or other that work ethic started young and I think a big part mm. of that was not being pushed. We genuinely wanted to be there. Mm. I remember at the age of I think I was eight or nine, to be honest, asking Dad to build a chin-up um, bar in the backyard <laughs> and him just looking at me like you're, you're eight years old and wow. just persisting and making it like and that came from me. So I yeah. think that's the reason, not encouraging that whatsoever, that's just silly, but um, I think it's the reason we're still doing what we love now mm. and um, I really yeah a lot of credit to mum and dad in that because it's it can be hard to find that balance. So when did you get your opportunity to wear that famous cosy? I was 17 years old mm. uh, I remember moving up to the Gold Coast um, after my HSC and um, I actually uh, started school a year earlier maybe because I had too much energy and mum wanted me out of the house yeah. I don't know but um fortunately she loves at eight yes exactly, I can understand that explains a few things um so I was 17 and and court had moved up maybe I'm gonna say three months prior yeah. so she sort of did a little bit of training in cops and we trained together which was really special did you um, make your debut in the Iron Man series together, Iron Woman uh, series? She did a, before me. She did a sure. series the year before, which was really cool. Yeah. But the next year, um, that was when I came into it. So that was her second year. And I remember trialling. And the blessing mm-hmm. was um, it was massive surf on the Gold Coast. It was supposed to be here. It was like six, seven foot. Mm. We had to go to um, Red Cliff, which is flat as and it was a blessing for me because I'd just gotten on the ski and there was no way I had the skills. I would not have made it if it was here. But because right. it was flat, I was able to have that fitness as a wiry 17-year-old yeah, yeah, and right. run past the girls in the transitions and, and actually qualify, which was a sure. huge shock, I think, to everyone. Yeah. And you did nine straight years of the Iron Woman series, the Nutri-Grain Iron Woman series? Yeah, I did. I did end up doing that. And I, um, I studied in the, at the same time. I was at mm-hmm. uni doing nutrition dietetics and, and competing mm-hmm. as a professional Iron Woman. And it was an awesome balance. I think um, I'm someone who knew, I really enjoy academics. I've always enjoyed study and I didn't want it to be just sport or just mm. that kind of surf life saving. So having that balance was really awesome. But, uh, yeah, over nine years, uh, you know, it's a lot of time to, to run around. And uh, I had some amazing experiences traveling mm. um, right around the world with it. I was really blessed. Well, tell me at your peak, what's like the moment that you remember the most, that you're most proud of during those nine years? Yeah, I think hitting the podiums is really awesome. And mm. um, there's actually a moment which is really cool. Um, I, I got third in the cooling out of gold one year and Courtney actually got second. And Aww. it was one of our, you know, getting on the podium together is really, really hard. We had Australian titles, state titles on the podium. Um, the Kellogg's rounds was, for some reason, we would have this thing where one of us would go well and the other one, it wasn't the best race. Right. And that happened a few times, yeah. um, you know, like, uh, she would have a win and I'd be off the podium somewhere in 10th and then I would get second and she'd be back a little bit. She had more consistent results than me has had way more results in Iron Woman, but, and I was, became more of a ski puddler, but in terms of the cooling out of gold, that race is 
I don't know why Courtney loves it so much, to be honest. She's amazing at it. (laughs) It is the pain cave, that thing. And I For people so- who don't know, describe the Coolangatta Gold because it, it is, I mean, it's iconic, isn't it, on the surf life-saving calendar. They made a movie out of that race. Um, Absolutely. It's, just, it's gruelling, though. Tell me how gruelling it is it's for those grueling. who aren't familiar. It's gruelling. I think the only, um, if you could sort of look for a similar thing, would be like Ironman triathlon, kind of yes. similar, except that goes a bit longer. So this is more With like, your disciplines. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So it's a 20. 23k ski paddle uh you know you do then a 2k run you're going into uh, a board which uh, sorry beg your pardon a swim which is 3k back into a board which is 5k and you're finishing at that time it was around a 10k run Mm. on the soft sand I was about to say on soft sand as well yeah (laughs) that's the difference is um you're finishing on sand and I can tell you when that time In Queensland sun and conditions and it's hot. Exactly. And when the tide is high Mm. and not low, you get soft sand the whole way. And I can tell you one of my best achievements is getting on that podium because I said to myself, I will never do this ever again (laughs) if I get on the podium and I did. And I had a funny moment where dad thought the person behind me was a female it, it was a male with long oh. hair and he said to me Bon you're almost there but there's someone 200 behind it was a male and I'll never forgive him because I pushed myself to the point of almost vomiting wow. but to get to the end and stand on the podium together that was really really special yeah because you, you, like you said you didn't get that opportunity that much during the actual mm. Nutrigrain professional series so that yeah. would have been an incredible moment was it competitive with, with you and Courtney I mean you were up there you're both a Hancock sisters mm. you know you've got your fan bases as well uh, did it get competitive at all Never between us. It was a really interesting learning curve. I mean, as a 17-year-old to have the media kind of with headlines like sister mm. rivalry and, you know, mm. um, when one of us would win or beat, it would be like a headline like beats older sister or something. So mm. I think that was a bit strange to kind of try and overcome. But mm. I just really tried to keep in my own lane. You know, I knew that the ironically enough with what I've just done, which we'll get into, but the short course sprinting was probably more where I was at, which is where I loved getting into the ski paddling Mm. later, which was the single discipline. You know, I would stay in my own lane. Court had so many amazing results. And I think it was in the end, I just realized it was so special to be there witnessing firsthand. I mean, we'd have races where one of us would pass the other and be encouraging the other within the oh, race. Yeah, yeah. Or, or paddling out and seeing her on the other side coming back, battling for first and calling out. So mm. we'd, we'd grown up in coughs. There's hardly any, sur- you know, prof- elite surf lifesavers down there. We relied mm. on each other and we carried that up. No matter what people were saying, um, it never affected our relationships and we're still the best, best of friends. You are? That's awesome. Mm. That's really, really cool. Because I hosted the Nutrigrain series for two years when I was with Channel 9 and loved it because of my jam. You know, obviously been involved in surf lifesaving myself for a really long time. I rode boats, which I know is very different. Um, And there's always that war between boats and the others. Anyway, I absolutely Mm. loved it. So it was an absolute privilege to be able to host those for a few years, uh, but I didn't get to be with you. Like you had quit before then. Why did you give it all up? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we talk about learning curves and 
um, for me, uh, was around that sort of mid-20s. So by that stage, 24, 25, again, we'd spent, spent that eight, nine years in it, so around 25, um, I actually got really sick. So I put a lot of pressure on myself this particular season. I'd had a season before where I cracked some podiums, had some wins, and it was mm. the best season of my life. And I thought, this is it. I've come into my own. You know, this next season is going to be bigger and better. And just the lack of education around the body, the female body overtraining is what mm. led to it. Um, I basically did a whole off season of never, ever letting myself miss a session. Even if mm. I was run down, fatigued, I was training three times a day, every day. Um, I was under fueling. Uh, I know mm. um, my, my friends, Harriet Brown and Lizzie Wellborn have recently done a little podcast on body image issues and that kind of thing. And mm. for me, that was a very real thing, which I think a lot of females do experience. So it was, it was a combination of under fueling mm. Um, body composition sort of focus for myself mm. because I thought I, I'd had a few comments like um, about what an athlete should look like and, you know, maybe that I didn't look like a typical iron woman. Um, what, what, and I why? Said, why? Because yeah. you, you guys, I've got to say, I really want to pick up on this because mm. you're always in your cozies, like every photo shoot, every everything. You're always in your cozies and yeah. you're in your cozies during a time when, Oh, how would I put it? Like the way the media is towards female athletes now is very different, but back mm. then was quite objectified and sexualized a lot of the time or just yeah. really cruel, basically. Like your body yeah. was open slather for people to comment on, whereas now, you know, that stuff gets called out, thank goodness. Yeah. But what was that like during that era and being Absolutely. involved in it that way? Absolutely. You're spot on. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's not acceptable these days to comment on females' bodies in that way. But back then, it unfortunately was a really common thing. And, I mean, I'm nowhere near as tall as, like, when I get on a start line, I look along, I'm nowhere near as tall as a lot of these women. I don't look traditionally like an athlete in that way, like, you know, the really broad, tall, lean, like that kind mm. of thing. But but everyone had different figures. Like you you mentioned Harriet Brown has a really yeah. like tall, slender figure and Lizzie Wellborn, but then you've got yeah. like Hayley Bader who had real, like she yeah. had a really solid, muscly kind of figure. Like there was no yeah. real, I and mean, you were so different. You, you have different strengths. You, yeah. you know, you've got those different disciplines that you have to compete yeah. in as well. But did you, because yeah. I'm like, I feel like you had, you're the, 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 for want of a better word, normal iron yeah. woman figure, but yeah. did you feel what, that you weren't muscly enough or you were, you were too small or too big? Because I'm, yeah. I'm struggling to understand, but I no, know like everyone totally. nitpicked about everything back then. It was awful. Everything. Looking back, I was really, really lean, um, you know, racing really well. It literally was just a couple of people who were uneducated about it. And I remember a comment like, oh, you just don't look like a, t a traditional athlete, someone who'd actually get out there and smash it. Like, it's really surprising you can do what you do. And I look back, I'm like, I had the, you know, an, a great body composition for it. Mm. I felt really good. But it, you know, now I could not care less if someone said something to me. Like, I find mm. it hilarious because throughout the big paddle I've done, I, I get, I've copped all sorts of comments on my physique, like from really? male, female, all ages. Um, I'd expect your shoulders to be bigger. Oh, your shoulders oh my God, are quite really big. Really, still? 
Absolutely. It's oh, hilarious. Gosh. And it just shows you can never control what other people say, particularly yeah. as an athlete. You can only control how you absorb it or, or don't yeah. absorb it and just filter those things. So it's been mm. really quite an interesting experience. And it does take me back because I've been out of Iron Woman racing for a little while and just haven't heard those comments. It sort of took me back as a 25 mm. year old, quite sensitive 25 year old. I should have just said, stuff that like this is work for me I've had my best season yeah I don't care um you know my coach was really happy um I was eating really well and then you just think you you lose a little bit of weight and then you get a comment like Mm. you're looking really good you're looking fit Mm. you go a bit further the positive comments start and and that's how it starts and I look back I'm like that is just the typical red flags Mm. danger you start to get the headaches and you start to get fatigued and you don't pick up that you're underfueling. Yeah. There's some awesome um, educational tools now for female athletes around it and some really positive role models. I had really positive role models in my life, but I was just an uneducated 25-year-old in terms mm. of listening to other people's opinions too mm. much, I guess. And well, that was the surroundings back then too. Yeah. Like that was your environment yeah. back yeah. then. Yeah. So you were and- underfueling and over training because then coupled with that factor of like you're doing endurance events as well so you you're going to hurt so it's okay to hurt but obviously that pain wasn't the right pain am I right in in saying that that you should be feeling absolutely you notice particularly that fatigue like a heaviness in your body um, and that's just your body desperately you know it's wanting calories for energy it's not there Mm. so you know I ended up with the typical things I went iron deficient um I got glandular fever and mm. basically because I did, wasn't aware at the time or didn't get the test, I kept training and that turned into a chronic fatigue. So mm. that's when I had to stop Pull racing, back. stop competing. Yeah. I just had no energy. But in the end, it allowed me to focus on my studies. I took a couple of years away from the sport. Mm. And even though it was so hard at the time, it was all meant to happen because that led to me coming back as a ski paddler and <laughs> focusing on the short course ski, which was the best thing that could have happened. I've had so many experiences. And I think if it didn't happen, I would have still been doing Ironman racing and not found perhaps that talent for the ski paddling because it was yeah. always a weakness because I'd never focused on it. I was going to say you were still ski paddling, but it just didn't, wasn't a focus of yours. Was that a bit psychological? You know, when you're like, that's not my best leg. So not yeah. really well, into it or how did yeah, I think so. And I think as well at the time, women's ski paddling was still developing. Like it, um, you know, mm. I was more of a swimmer and a board paddler, so I was working on those strengths. I didn't have the confidence in the ski. I would look at these women and mm. be like, I can never get there. Now there's a lot of um, workshops and things for girls younger on the ski. I was a very late bloomer on the ski. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's um, it was all meant to happen. And I think um, – Yeah, looking back, I would have told those people basically to just, you know, rack off. Yeah, (laughs) it was a blessing in disguise. It was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. How did you get over your chronic fatigue? Because I know that can be really, really difficult to to kind of overcome. Yeah, absolutely. It was a a real learning journey, I'm going to say, of a a year or two. I'd driven my body into the ground. Um, I went from this supremely fit athlete to, um, you know, really struggling every single day. Mm. I went back to walking very gradually. I was trying to find out what was wrong with me. Um, It was an interesting learning process. And in the end, I just had to take the time. My energy slowly came back over that next Mm. year. Um, 
and, you know, where my education as a dietitian came in and that nutrition and making sure I was covering all of those bases. But it was the typical example of underfueling. So as soon as I started giving my body what it wanted and what it needed, I started mm. getting better and better. But uh, mm. it did take one or two years. That's a long time. Are your lowest during that period? Like how difficult for those who don't, I guess, understand chronic fatigue, just how yeah. debilitating did it get? Yeah. So I'd gone from an athlete training three times a day and studying full-time load to mm. having to drop out of uni for a semester Um mentally doing one crossword a day was an achievement for me. So mm. I would give myself the task to do something mentally. I couldn't focus properly. So to do a crossword and to go for a light walk. So that was really hard to get used to that new way of living. And then it sort mm. of built up maybe after a month, I would be able to do two crosswords, maybe read a book, um, mm. maybe do a light sort of run. But that is where it got, that is where it got to. It was um, literally if I could get through one crossword that day and a light walk mm. and that would be exhausting. It was mm. just, it was just ridiculous. My body still had that post-viral type fatigue. Mm. Um, so it was exhausting. And it, it really forced me to look at who I was as a person because my whole identity and everything I'd ever known was within Surf Life Saving, my friends, mm you know, mm-hmm. who we'd go and party with like on our, in our off season, everyone was tied to surf club. I had mm. uni friends as well and they were a savior during that time. Mm. But I really learned during that time who was, who was there for mm. me um, in a genuine way, but most importantly, who I was and where my value was outside of sport. Did you get people during that time not understanding chronic fatigue and thinking that it's all in your head and then just saying, telling you? it's all in your head, yeah. just get up and change your mindset, thinking it's as simple as that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> for the first sort of couple of months was particularly the hardest. I think people were in a bit of denial about what was happening, thinking I would come back racing. I was trying to tell people I'd have, have absolutely no chance I'm going to come back racing and how I'm feeling. Mm. And I think I had to sort of, I learned to block that external noise out, listen to myself. And when I actually made that call to finish the season. I'd done half the season trying and trying and I made that call right before some really significant events like the Australian titles, the mm. rest of the Nutri-Grain. I had to watch one of the girls come in and take my spot in the Nutri-Grain that I'd worked so hard mm, for to qualify to the year before. Mm. Um, and it was sort of, yeah, it was the first time I'd really had to sort of build that resilience I mean as an athlete you're building that Mm. physical and that mental resilience with sport but this was a whole different beast this was Mm. like looking at yourself and seeing where your qualities lie outside Mm. of sport because as an athlete you are high on confidence you've got you have wins or you're on the podium everyone wants to kind of talk to you you know Mm. and and spend time with you when that's taken away and your identity said that's where you do hit that mm. that low, and mm. and I did, and that also took that one or two years to build that confidence back up mm. that I was more than just an athlete. I'm mm. so much more than just an athlete. Did you want to come back to Iron Woman? Did you try to come back to Iron Woman? How did that go for yeah. you? Yeah, I actually had a really awesome season. I came back. Um, I joined Carrawa Surf Club, and I actually competed in the 
Summer Surf, uh, which is mm-hmm. a great uh, series. Um, you know, Trent Goulding started that way back just after oh, 2012 or so. Um, and Sean Partners are getting behind it this year, which is really cool. But <clears throat> I came back, I did some Iron Woman races and I actually, actually went really well. It was really interesting. I actually got some podiums. I was stronger than I'd ever mm-hmm. been because I'd learnt so much about my body I was mm. eating so well. I was fueling my body. I'd finished my degree. So I knew what I was doing in that yeah. area. But most importantly, I was enjoying it and I had mm. no pressure on myself. I was like, mm. it doesn't matter because anything's a bonus from here. Mm. And I noticed when I came back that my strength on the ski had really increased and mm. I was a far better athlete than before. And I started thinking, I got some results in the ski races and thought, maybe this is something I can go into. So mm. it was a year of the Iron Woman, and then the next season I decided to focus on the ski. Did you do Nutrigrain when you came back? I did a couple of rounds of Nutrigrain. I think I got a wild card into some or yeah. whatever it was. Um, yeah. I hadn't qualified because I'd missed the trial. Sure, yeah. So I think I had a go in a couple of the rounds. I'm pretty sure a wild card, but mainly the summer surf, which is where all the professional Iron Women were still racing. Yeah, um, yeah which was cool, but it was almost not doing the Nutrigrain professionally, kind of took the pressure off. So yeah, I was still yeah. racing them in a different way, um, which was awesome. And it was so yeah. cool. I'd still go down to the beach and watch court and watch all my friends. Yeah. But I just felt like the monkey was off the back now. Sport yeah. was, I'd been to such a low place that coming back, I was like, mm. sports for enjoyment. This is, this yeah. is great. Did you miss that athlete life and that athlete profile when you were when you were away from it? I think at the start I did. I really, really did. And um, you know, it's interesting. There was no social media of that. No. Sorry, there was social media, but not that real emphasis on there yeah. like there is now, which was probably a really good thing. Mm. I think um, you know, sometimes we can get a bit caught up in in mm. all of that. Um, so I am glad, but. Yeah, I, I did. I think you miss the profile particularly. You know, you've got, as an island, the media's calling you, mm. you're doing articles, you're busy, your confidence kind of develops in that way. So I missed it for probably six months and then I started finding out some of my other talents and I love mm. writing. I actually love drawing and I'm terrible at drawing. I'm a much better writer than a drawer. Mm. Um, you know, who I was as a friend, as a sister, as a daughter, um, all of these things that maybe these relationships I hadn't focused on as much mm. because of sport. Mm. So I think I became a better friend and a better person through that time. And yeah, um, right. that yeah. was really cool. It was really yeah. cool to finally spend time with people without having to rush off the training was was nice. So then not pursuing Iron Woman and Nutrigrain, but pursuing ski, was it because you love the ski more or was it because you'd just fallen out of love with Iron Woman? I think I think the latter. I think I'd fallen out of love with the Iron Woman racing. And I think that little season I came back was just to prove something to myself and to see mm. if I could still do it. Yeah. And once I did that, I thought I don't need to prove to anyone else this. Like I'd mm. gone to that stage in my life, I felt so fulfilled after everything I'd been through. Mm. Um, I was working as a dietitian. Um, you know, my social life was great. Mm. Uh, family life's great. And I just thought, this is just for me. And then 
the sort of outcome of that, which wasn't expected, was finding this talent on the ski. I was like, <laughs> which I don't you know thought what, you didn't like, which I thought I didn't like, and I think because it was so different to everything I'd ever mm. done. And I'd always looked up to these women in the ski, like looked up to Hayley Badup and Kirsty Holmes mm. and how they'd held these ski in this, this huge conditions. And I thought maybe I'll give it a crack. And you know, worst comes to worst, whatever, you fail, who cares? Like that's where yeah. I was at by that stage. Yeah. It was just great yeah. because I was like, I'll lose Perfect my ski in a race or what? I just don't really care. Yeah. So the next it's not the season, most important thing, right? Exactly. Anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I was in that sort of cycle of it's all on results and everything. It's like you have a bad result, you're so down the next week and it takes you a week to get back up. This was like, I don't care, I could laugh it off. So coming back and doing the ski, the races are a lot shorter. They're about five minutes. So it's Mm -hmm. completely different to an Ironwoman race is always a minimum, say, 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's very much strength, power, Mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed that Mm -hmm. aspect and you can kind of channel a little bit of aggression into it. Like it's it's so, so fun. (laughs) So what kind of results did you get? Because you were, were you still doing worlds and things like that or was it just like Aussie titles, Australian I, titles? Mainly the Australian uh, state. So I had a, in the Summer Surf Series, managed to win three of the six races, um, which mm-hmm. were against all the girls who were professional. Kind of surprised myself with that. And then I won the state titles. And then at, at the Australian titles, I ended up third um, in quite a close race. So I had never been on the podium in the ski races until a couple of random ones a season before. And to have the consistent results, I was like, I think this is something I'm actually (laughs) quite good at. I just never realised. And it was awesome because, say, Courtney would race in the swim race and I'd actually be able to watch her in that. She'd be able to watch me in the ski race, which we'd never been able to. We were always in the same race. And, um, yeah, it was a really, really special time. And, again, Wherever I finished on that Sunday, the Monday was a great day anyway because mm. it just didn't matter. It was yeah. so fun. Right. Let's. That brings us up to the record. Um, okay. I don't even know where to start because this just blows my mind. Why? Why did you want and how did you come across the idea to circumnavigate in your ski around Australia? Yeah, and... That is, I think, one of the best questions because I would ask someone exactly the same thing, like, what on earth? Um, it, I'd be lying if I said it didn't start for selfish reasons. I went to mm-hmm. Broad Beach Library, my local library, mm-hmm. and I love autobiographies. And like any other day, I picked up, I picked up three autobiographies and I read them. One of those happened to be Fearless, and it was a book by Joe Glickman. He was a paddler and a journalist, and he wrote about Freya Hoffmeister. She was the German woman who paddled around Australia in 2009. She beat the men's records and did it in 10 months, 22 days. I could not, I was obsessed. I read that book. I just could not get <laughs> And it's this totally life. random that you picked that book up? Totally random. So of all the books in that library, I looked at this one and it was like the cross paddles, her holding. I thought, oh, that looks okay. And I grabbed it, (laughs) didn't think too much about it and read this book. And I just literally from the moment I sort of started reading the first couple of pages, like this seed of an idea started in my head. And I always have these crazy ideas, but I was just like, could I do that? Could I do that? And I was reading about sharks bumping her ski and crocodiles in the night and there was just something that captured my imagination. Oh, my goodness, which I found out too That's much enough about. to make people shut the book, but that's I what know, made you. I know. I made me keep reading and turning the pages, and I just thought, 
what a powerful, brave, strong woman. And I got to the end and I did shut the book and I looked at my <laughs> husband and said, I think I want to try and paddle around Australia. <laughs> and I got no response. He just looked at me. I think he might have got up and gone and made himself a coffee. No response. He's like, six, hold on, I need a drink for this. <laughs> for six months, I sort of was tossing him around. I, I kept coming back and saying, I think I do want to do it though. Literally nothing. I think he was like, she'll forget about it. Like this is just after six months, he's like, you're going to do this anyway, aren't you? I said, yeah, I I think I am. And he said, all right, let's go. Let's start planning it. 12,700 kilometres. What was your initial kind of idea about how this was going to look? Time-wise, equipment-wise, Tell me, I'm thinking you're probably naive at the start, thinking this. Oh, so naive. Like, honestly, <laughs> you, we talk about that 10-year-old Bonnie walking around Sawtell. It was like that comparatively, <laughs> like so naive and innocent. I was like, all right, how do I plan for paddling around Australia? I don't even know. We need to get a car that's going to be our support for when we need to camp, etc. We need mm-hmm. to find a boat. We need to find a boat because the one thing I knew was I didn't want to go out there on my ski on my own. I mean, someone did it on their own. It was 22,000 kilometres from hugging the coast. So Mm. I thought compared to 14,000 that Freya did. So Mm. actually taking the direct line, you save thousands of kilometres. Like it's Mm. crazy because you look at this coast of Australia, it's so, you know, rugged and um, it's not exactly Mm. a circle that goes around. So we found a catamaran that could come with us and then it was finding the right people. And my husband actually organized the crew. So I said, I'll find the boat, get the sponsors, you find the crew. And he found three of the most amazing men that you could ever ask that were willing to put their lives on hold. At the time it was six months is what I was going for. It was eight months. Yeah. Put their lives on hold, come and volunteer and help a female try and do this. And that was such a powerful thing, I thought. And, wow, um, volunteer yeah. their time mm-hmm. to, yeah. and take eight months out of their lives. To, so yeah. you thought it was going to be six months to start with? I sold it to them that it would be six months. I genuinely <laughs> thought that's what it would take. So it was a six months, six months. Um, I worked that out off that average of 80K a day, but what I didn't anticipate was the 35 knot winds that would come in far north Queensland that would hold us up in an island for a, a wow. week at a time. Wow. Um, but they did the videography as well, which was really cool because we were able to share the story. Yeah. And uh, the growth I saw within them along the way was just, it was incredible. It was really cool. Wow. So they've agreed to put their lives on hold to do this for six months, maybe eight. What record, I mean, how long did it take Freya? Yep. So 10 months, 22 days was the current record. I applied to Guinness World Record to break this record. They told me that's, that's the current record. Um, so she did it essentially on a, a very large like kayak, like a sea kayak. So mm. they're about 30 kilograms. She packed all of her food into it. She had boat support and land support for 30% of the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to have the support there the whole way. I wanted to do this as a high performance thing. I jumped into a nine kilo carbon fiber high performance ski. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like, there's no way you're going to be able to sit in that all day. It's so narrow. So it was 
pros and cons of the two different ways of doing it. Specifically built, right? For exactly. This too. It's, it's built for racing. So the other one's built for adventure. I jumped on my racing ski and I was like, it's fine. I'll get around. I had the backups on the boat though. So I had one of those big ones on the boat and an sure. intermediate ski. I ended up paddling 12,500 kilometers on my racing ski and basically wow. had 90% of people saying it would never happen. So we proved that right. And the Nordic ski, I paddled so comfortable in the seat, but I had a big seat pad as well. But we yes. were just figuring it all out as we went. We, I don't know. Like I've never sat on a ski longer that than long. Molokai. Exactly, which is four hours from Molokai, four and a bit. So sitting on a ski, I was 12, 14 hours a day in this sitting down, which we say don't sit in your office chair too long. This is a tiny little seat like... I got a disbulge in the end, not surprisingly, but yeah. I was gonna say, what kind of stuff do you get from that? Do you get like, do you get sores or something from that? Well, that's yeah. It's a really good point because your body, the salt water is just so bad for your skin all day. So we were moisturizer, coconut oil, anything we could to try and keep the salt off. I was in wrist to ankle of. you know, rashes and uh, skins and thermals, trying to keep the salt water off, trying to keep warm. Yes, I did break out in a few rashes, um, which were really actually quite borderline. It's like, do you go and get this treated properly? We were out at sea for, say, three, two weeks at a time. So it was when I came in, I'd have to race to the doctors, get on some antibiotics, try and get infections down, Mm. get back out there. But I was so blessed with my support crew because they were, they'd have the fresh water there, you know, over the head, get the salt water off. Mm. I mean, that's if I was lucky to have a lunch break. There were days, plenty of days I paddled all day without a lunch break. So All day. How, what was the longest time that you paddled? So the longest, well, the longest time is 24 hours. I, I did that five times throughout the journey. And 24 hours on a paddle without getting off. Yeah. Yeah, 24 hours. Um, the first stint I did was How do you in go to the toilet. Yeah, I well, I must say, I did take, I will say though, sorry, 10 minute break to get on the toilet because I was like, I'm sorry, there's Tour de France. I know they go in the Peloton and they do number two. Oh, that's not going to happen with me. I was no. like, I will dive <laughs> off the ski or get onto the boat. I'm I was going to say, did do- you dive into the water and then do your business and then hop back on? There's all these little oh, things I want to know about. Right. Yeah. Fortunately, the catamaran has the toilet on it. So Great. when I say 24 hours, I did take a 10-minute break. I think it was 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes to jump on and go to the toilet. Because, again, I'm happy to say I went the whole thing without soiling myself, which yeah. I'm sure – endurance athletes no you physically just can't do that (laughs) you just can't do it and you try to time it you try to time it and go to the toilet in the morning sometimes you just don't have to and you Mm. know you can't paddle and exert yourself that long without Mm. you know having to go to the toilet so things like that were really um interesting and hard and the boys would never know but as a female having your period as well on oh my boat, gosh. all males and oh I'm gosh. in the water, right? Just things like that and having to race down and change and all those little things that. Oh my gosh. I was the I only. I didn't even think of that. But yeah, yeah period. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it was really interesting. And basically for on a, on a boat, if anyone's been on a catamaran, like your privacy is gone. Like your mm. privacy is gone. It's such a small boat. You can't even have a conversation without everyone hearing. So it was the little things I had to kind of figure out myself. Yeah. But the yeah. boys were awesome. They were really supportive. And, um, yeah, they would 
run down, get the dry clothes for me, you know, all the things needed, cook, clean. I didn't have to do any of that. So that helped me be a high-performing athlete. Wow, that's insane. So when, like, how does it work? Like, do you, obviously you did five times 24 hours. I don't know how you did that. That's insane. But on the other times in order to sleep, do you hop back on the catamaran and then pick up where you left off? Or you said that you went on land sometimes to sleep. Like, you know, like how does it, like the logistics of it, how does that work? The logistics were insane. So um, on the, we had the Ford Ranger. We got sponsored by Gardner Cars who were so awesome giving us that for the whole time. Thank you. Um, So my husband, Matt, and Ben, one of the boys, they drove the whole way around Australia in this Ranger and they would meet us at certain places and whether it was with the groceries to restock the boat, um, whether it was with fuel for our jet ski in certain areas where the boat couldn't really go to be with me. The logistics were absolutely crazy. There's some really remote parts of the country. We pretty much did the whole West Coast just with jet ski. There were beaches um, sacred to the Indigenous people where you couldn't turn left, you could only turn right, you couldn't take shells from the beach. We had to study the culture. Um, And, yeah, but I would come onto the boat. I basically lived on a boat for for eight months. We would anchor at reefs, at headlands, wherever we could, Um, or if not, we were camping um, with our ranger um, on beaches so Matt wasn't on the boat. Matt was in the car. Yeah, yeah. What's was, the longest you went without touching land? Yeah, we went three weeks across the Great Australian Bight. It was the hardest stretch of the whole thing. They wow. were on land and all they could see was the AIS tracker with the boat making its way. No communication, no yeah. nothing. And Because how far out to sea did you go? 500k. That's a, that's a long way. It's a long way. And I say to people out there, the water's black. It changes. The whole vibe is is scary. It's black. I was paddling at night out there to get the Ks in. and um, Can you see yeah. land at 500 Ks? You can't no. see land from around 80 to 100 K. <laughs> and I can tell you when you're out there, it's disorientating. You yeah. look around. And there were times where after a lunch break I'd get in the water and start paddling off the wrong way. They're like, oh, and it's back there. Like you're oh. heading back where you came from. Yeah. It's just bizarre. And we didn't see a single creature the whole way across, which was so eerie because we got yeah. told there could be killer whales and things. I was like, I do not want to see. But you know things are happening. Across the bite. That across was across the, the bite. Yeah. So was that, what was the most dangerous part? How yeah. bad, above yeah. bads, did it get? Definitely the great Australian bite. It is it was six metre swells. These swells are as big as houses. They're big. They're like, you know, a story. Like if you look at a building, you know, it's six metres a fair way up launching. And I was having to catch these and the catamaran. I remember looking at the catamaran and almost seeing it tip on the side. And um, it was really touch and go. I mean, the boys hadn't, Jamie, um, one of the crew had spent his life in the ocean surfing. Blake had never really been in the ocean that much. So they were really brave across there and um, the worst part about it, I got extremely seasick, as did Blake. We were mm. vomiting the whole time. I lost eight kilos in two weeks because I couldn't keep any food down. And when I got You were seasick for two weeks straight. Seasick for two weeks straight. I, I oh, that's know. the worst. And you had the, to keep paddling. Did you keep paddling or were you on the catamaran at that stage? 
I had to paddle 100k every day. It got to the stage where I was vomiting, um, literally launching it into the water. This is, I mean, by no privacy, um, trying not to vomit in the ski. Um, and then, yeah, basically on the boat, I was still vomiting. I just, <gasps> tablets didn't work. Um, when I got to the other side in Western Australia, I had to get hospitalized and get the IV fluids in. I could basically barely walk. And I think there's a time Jamie reminded me, he said they were spoon feeding me and I was so bad that he had to make the movements of the chewing with my mouth to get it down. And Oh, wow. Was, yeah. <laughs> That's next level. That's mm. insane. So, so, so you're on waves the size bigger than double-storey houses. You're vomiting every couple of paddles, can't keep anything down. Two weeks of that. That's insane. Mm. Did you And did you paddle at night and then fall into the water at night? Was that at the bite as well? Yeah, that, that was in the bite. Um, so basically it takes t- 12 minutes of submersion, the bite in 12 degree water to get hypothermic. I was in one day for 10 minutes. So this was a really touch and go situation. So where we are out there, it's out of helicopter range. It's a couple of days at a full motor to help. So you're entirely on your own. If something happens, it's, it's life-threatening. And um, basically there was a day the wind was really strong and I fell off my ski. I was so exhausted. It was about six days in, vomiting all day, and I couldn't get back into my ski as desperate I was trying. Uh, the wind Six the days up. into the bite, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, how, yeah. yeah. And how far into the trip, like, is that? So the bite, we started in the on the Gold Coast down underneath. So we were probably two, three, two and a half months into the trip by this stage. And then six days into the bite. Six days into the bite. And um, the wind picked the ski up and it hit me on the head twice. Oh, shit. And the boat was a little way up ahead. It takes the boat 500 metres to slow down and come back to me when I fall off. It's pitch black, no moon, dark middle as. Middle of the night. Middle of the night out there. and No moon. No moon. My ski's got a little LED light and when you look down, you can just see your feet dangling in the water. And I remember thinking, if something's going to take me here, this, this is the time it will happen. Mm. And um, I couldn't for the life of me get back in my ski. The boat eventually came around and they're calling out saying, do you want us to get in the water? Are you okay? I had no strength. I couldn't even speak back. Yeah. Um, by the time I desperately, I had to push my ski towards the boat. And by the time I got on, I was shaking uncontrollably. I couldn't speak. We had the space blanket on, the hair dried down, and they're getting hot food into me. And that was probably the closest we came to having to pull the pin. Um, mm. I decided to get back in the next day and keep going um, because I thought there's no way I want to ever come back and have to do this again. But I literally <laughs> preferred like to get the- a goal all over Absolutely. <laughs> the same approach, the same approach, hypothermia, coolie goal. And I thought, um, you know, I'm never coming I back. Want to do and- this again. Yeah, wow. that, that was where we all had to. Were you afraid to... that they may not find you in the dark because it'd be so yeah. easy to lose oh. you? You only had a little light, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's terrifying out there. And there's a lot of people who go, sailors who go missing at sea. Um, you know, we do man mm. overboard drills where you mark the spot and come back. But it only so takes, hard. it doesn't mm. take long until mm. that boat's gone. There's wind whipping, there's waves everywhere. Mm. It's, um, it's touch and go. So it's scary wow. to think what could have happened out there. Mm. And then how long after that 
did you finish? Like how many more months yeah. until like after you were hospitalised? Yeah, totally. So that was over in Western Australia. So then we took two months to get around. That. Western Australia is huge. Like I <laughs> so get hospitalised, got to get back on your boat and then you've got to like got a few more months of paddling 100 k's a day. Five months basically wow. after that. So that was Not just really a few, five. just the start. <laughs> wow. What about the dangers? Because sharks, crocodiles, mm. hit mm. me. How close calls did you have? What did you see out there? I know. I, there's a story that I'll tell you about crocodiles. And I say to the kids, I would say it was a long way out to sea. Don't worry. This is a long way out. But basically, <laughs> I'm sorry, we're paddling in the Kimberley, which is right at the top of the country, a beautiful mm-hmm. place to explore by boat. And um, again, nighttime, of course, because that's oh. when these predators hunt. Um, mm. I got stuck in a, a whirlpool. The boat was in a whirlpool. So the, off the islands, there's these crazy currents. They take you in circles. I never thought they exist. I never believed they existed. It's called an etty. And I'm following the boat around like, what are we doing? I'm 80K deep. Wow. This is ridiculous. So that was bizarre in itself. It reminded me of like the Bermuda Triangle. It was just crazy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, my coach is like, Bon, come up to the come up now to the boat. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought it was just a danger thing with the whirlpool. He said, no, no, right now, come up to the boat. I was okay. So I paddled right up. He said, sit behind the boat, okay? Don't go away. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We broke the current. So the boat gets a certain amount of speed up and you're able to break the current. Broke the current, was paddling away. And the skipper said, all right, you're right to call it, call it a day. And I was like, okay, yeah, I've done 80 for today. That's pretty good. He must, there must be other currents coming. So I didn't ask too much and I got on the boat, had some dinner. It was a week later that my coach told me when we were almost finished at Kimberley, as we were going around in the whirlpool, I saw them at the time shining the torches out to the side. He saw the flicker of the silver and a massive crocodile sitting <laughs> 10 metres away, looking in, waiting outside the current. And that's why he told me to come up to the boat. Oh, <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Far out. Lucky because so, that's at night time, right? At and it doesn't time. take much to knock you off your ski if that's you're a crocodile. Exactly. I was worried about the bumping. And I know Freya mm. at one stage was getting bumped by sharks. I mean, crocodiles, they're predators. They stalk. Um, they're they're mm. patient, so they will mm. wait and one of the guys who paddled around Australia got followed for 100 kilometres by one. Like they're wow. so scary because sharks are quite opportunistic. They'll, they're yes. quite spontaneous. Um, and I saw the biggest shark jump out of the water in the Northern Territory. That reminded me of one of those documentaries, like a great white. The skipper reckons it was a, um, a bronze whaler. I'm not so sure on the size of its tummy, but they jumped that the crocodiles are patient and they were the ones that played on my mind a bit more. What about sharks? What was the closest call you had with a shark? Yeah, so a bit of a similar one coming into Perth um, near Carnarvon. Um, so sharky. So sharky, exactly. It's very deep. It's very quiet and still. This was in the daytime at least, but um, my crewmate Jamie was on Bonnie Watch, which is a person who would watch me. And he did the same thing. He's quite a chill dude, was like chilling out. And then he sat up, come to the boat. I was like, 
okay. I'm, Do you know I'm by then, like you've been traveling around for months with these guys, you know that that's not a normal, a normal reaction? I would, but I've got my headphones in. I've got like sure. M&M in. I'm like thinking that I'm Stormzy or M&M. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm coming up to the boat paddled all the way up because you're exhausted so your mind's yeah. playing tricks on you anyway yes yes he said in that moment he saw the fin of the great white come up like the jagged on it and everything and then go under my ski and the big black thing disappear under and he said it was huge and again didn't tell me till a couple of days later which Thank I'm actually goodness. really glad about yes you don't want to be falling off in that moment but that's wow. just I'm glad I didn't see it did it play on your mind especially nighttime like yeah like paddling at night time? Did that always play in your mind? You can hear every splash. And mm. I kept saying to my crew, mm. we've got to somehow normalise this situation. So talk to me, give me trivia, give me jokes, give me riddles. Um, we'll pump the Yui boom on the boat or I'll have the headphones in. And that's how I got through yeah. it. It was like, I was like, put Taylor Swift or something on ridiculous because <laughs> this will just take my mind off it what was actually happening but you would have the moments where those things would happen it would snap you back to reality and go this is quite a dangerous situation what was your go-to like what did you listen to out there and when you really needed a pump up who was your go-to yeah I know people would find it hard to look at me and believe I really like rap music so actually (laughs) you know the other bit that got me through was um, a bit of house music so house music um, Jamie does some DJing and you have this awesome high tempo bass, um, you know, something like 220 beats or whatever per minute. And it's really, really good because you get into this almost flow, you know what the flow sure. state. So yeah, yeah. Some days you'd want the lyrics. Um, and, you know, something like a bit of Halsey was really good or Lord. Um, I said I love Storm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that kind of almost aggressive stuff. But there are other days you wanted to kind of tune out and you'd get – 100k done in 11 hours listening to this house music and um that was really interesting but I did need something high tempo I was planning to listen to podcasts yeah not quite um not enough going on for me to yeah 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 I was waiting for you say you you went through all 70 episodes of on her game while you were Take my mind off it. Give me something. <laughs> exactly. Wow. But you saw some beautiful things. I've seen some images of you right so close to a whale breaching. Oh, so close. It was incredible. And you've got to be careful with the whales. Um, basically, the but the big boat's not allowed near them. So it would be me paddling over and drifting over and, and just seeing what they were doing. And there was a time where I drifted over to them and let the whales come up to me. And at that time, the mothers had their calves and they were heading north. And the calves are really inquisitive. And there's been stories where the calf will come over and the mother will come up under the ski because they think you're going for the calf. So I just thought, okay, just put the paddle down, let it do what it wants to do. Mm. I was touching distance from these and I saw the mother put the protective flipper over and it was oh, just cute. a beautiful experience. And everyone mm. on the boat was, you know, yahooing and so excited for me. And um, it was quite wow. the GoPro footage. It was really cool. What about blisters? Um, yeah. Like uh, how did you stop that from from happening? I know. I've sort of come out of it not too bad. Um, I yeah, thought I would. Nice. Yeah. They, there's a lot more wrinkles on them, but, you know, worth it. Um, uh, yeah. I need to go to the manicurist, I think. <laughs> But, yeah, basically I wore gloves uh, every single day. I wore spearing gloves, which are really thick. 
Um, I had booties on my feet because you get blisters on your feet from driving. And those two things really help with sun protection too, because my doctor had told me they're high risk areas for skin cancers. So the gloves and the booties protected the blisters. And I was really, really fortunate and didn't, didn't get too many. There were times you get little ones, but nothing too major. And you mentioned the bite and, you know, being hospitalized. Were there any other moments? Did it happen at all that you thought, I can't do this anymore, that you came close to quitting? Because it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. I think the first couple of months were really the novelty of island hopping. We'd started the project. Um, It was really exciting. By the time we got to Western Australia, it was like the novelty had worn off, this ocean flattened out, so we didn't have the assistance. But for me, it was far north Queensland. It was really ironic because we were on the home stretch. I was getting 15 to 20 knot headwinds every day. So every single day, something pushing back against me, um, that tested me in more ways than I ever thought possible. I thought we'd seen it all. I thought there is nothing more we have Mm. to get through. And those headwinds, they were the thing that threatened the record the most because, again, we'd have to stop for a week at a time. Mm. It slowed my progress on the record down Mm. a a lot with that one. Um, So you got home. (laughs) You you managed to get the record. Um, What was was it like to to touch dry land and to have everyone there and and to know that you did it? Uh, It was just... I was saying it, it was a range of emotions over the day before and the, the, the day of it was um, first disbelief, like a surreal feeling. Like even when we first saw the skyline of the Gold Coast, it was like, this doesn't feel real. I've been imagining this in my mind for so long. Mm. Um, then it was excitement and anticipation about touching down. I can tell you BMD Northcliffe and Sean Partners just put on this most amazing celebration and then later on, I had this really nice paddle back to Mermaid Beach where we started on my own. And that was where it all started sinking in. I think that was where I I felt just extremely proud of, of myself mm. and the team. And I had this moment where I looked back on my life and I thought everything that's happened to me has led me to this. You know, mm. the chronic fatigue and pulling mm. out and going to ski paddling, picking up that book was meant to happen. Mm. And it was just this feeling of fulfillment was the total one. And I always say, yeah, I don't think I would have been ready for this in my twenties emotionally. I think it took Mm -hmm. until 32 to be ready for it, but Mm -hmm. it was, I'm just so glad I gave it a crack. Would you ever do anything like this again? (laughs) I still am saying no at this present time. Well, it's funny because a few people have said, would you do this again? Like with a lot of sponsorship, I'd never, ever paddle around Australia again. I can tell you that this was definitely the one, one time only, but already. And again, I, it's like deja vu. I look at my husband and say these ideas like paddling Antarctica possibly, or doing the English channel. And I think he is like, just chill out for a moment. But um, I've got a little bit of a tear in my bicep. I've got a bulge disc. So I'm going to let the body just chill yeah, for a little yeah. bit. Um, I mean, that's pretty good to come out of that with just a bulge disc yeah. and a tear. That's pretty amazing, right? Honestly, the body and the female body is incredible. And you hear all of these things that endurance improves as you get older. And I really do, I think I'm a testament to that. Mm. I think the way my body held up was years and years of what I'd mm. done Um 
emotionally being patient and not pushing myself at times, you know, too hard. I've pulled, pulled, knowing when Mm. to pull back as well. Um, The body is incredible. And I think females make incredible endurance athletes. And Mm. there's a lot to be seen in that space. You then decided, was it last week, to break the 24-hour record? Can you explain to me? So first of all, your record, the fastest person, to circumnavigate around Australia? Yes, yeah. yeah. Then you also held the record for the furthest female to paddle in 24 hours? Yeah. But last week you decided, you know what, that's not good enough. I want to be the furthest person to paddle in 24 hours or the person to paddle the furthest in 24 yeah. hours, male yeah. or female. So you got back on the ski. I know. It's, I'm laughing because it just sounds ridiculous. Like <laughs> why would you? And I have spoken to people after I'd done a few interviews and I said, I won't be, I'll put the paddle away for months. And then again, knowing me, I just don't know why my mind thinks like this. I thought I found out that it was 227. So I'd done 213. And I'd actually only paddle for 23 oh. hours of that 24 to do the 213. Ah, ah, so like, that would plan your mind a little bit. Right, right. And I was like, there is never going to be another time in my life mm. where I'm physically conditioned mm. to sit in a ski this long. Yeah. Could I do it? And I it's thought, be you now. Know and I thought there's no real records out there. I, I think like over 24 hours that a female would have over male. And I was just like, it's not even about in this case females beating men this for me was like raising the bar of ski paddling and just testing the body and seeing and I I put that on Instagram I said let's see what I can do fresh because every 24 hours I'd done through the paddle I was fatigued I was coming in off of a big week um it wasn't in the ideal prep so I had two weeks off from the day that I finished and then I got the crew back together. I got those amazing men <laughs> who support me. I think they were like, oh, my gosh, to go up to Early Beach. And it's a, the pressure was on because you've got to get the right conditions. Mm. You've got to be feeling good. And I managed to get 234 kilometres. And that's how I took my bicep 70K in. But I managed to break the men's record. And um, So yeah, you finished I, your eight and a half months without tearing your bicep. It was just this that tore it. It was wow. this, and it was because I was pushing myself mm. more, faster than or harder than I'd ever done. Mm. I had to stay on a 10K an hour average and mm. I had an incident early in where I got weed, seaweed stuck in my rudder. Oh, so gosh. I had to jump on and they had to, by that stage it had come out because I stopped the ski, but I thought my rudder had broken. So there was all sorts of drama. So I lost mm. time on the mm. record and then I had to stay and it was just, so intense, but we were we were so so proud as a team Yay. and so happy to get that done. That's so good. Now you raised money for Gotcha for Life as well. Um, doing this, you didn't just do it to get the record and do it for you. You did it for an incredible cause. Gus Warland is just a legend. I love Gus. Why did you choose that charity to do this? Absolutely. So I first heard about Gotcha for Life through our professional ocean racing series. Um, and they were raising money for Gotcha for Life. And I looked into them and saw it was a mental fitness charity and mm. helped to raise money, didn't think any more about it. At, during at the start of this paddle, I knew three things. I wanted to try and break the world record. I wanted to share it by taking the videographers and bring people mm-hmm. on the journey. And I wanted to do some good with it. 
And I thought now more than ever, we need a focus on mental health. We, we mm. need that focus through the pandemic. The statistics were going up in all areas. Um, you know, the statistics on suicide were going up and starting from mm. a young age. And I'd seen people around me really struggling with anxiety and depression through uh, job losses and relationship breakdowns. Mm. So I started looking into Gotcha for Life. And what I love about Gus and that charity the terminology they use. So yes. they use mental fitness as their term mm. because we all focus on our physical health mm. and physical fitness, but we can work on our mental fitness and mm. improve that just like we do a muscle. So that emotional So we go muscle. to a gym or where we go see a personal trainer, even yeah. if we're already fit because we want to keep that fitness. And that's the same idea with seeing a psychologist or seeing a counsellor with your mental fitness, right? I love that as well from from Gotcha for Life. I think it's really powerful and important. Exactly. It's all about breaking the stigma about speaking about it too. So they talk about a Gotcha for Life mate who's there for you through whatever, whenever, and we should be able to talk about our mental fitness. And um, I am so glad I chose them uh, throughout the way they helped support me as well. They showed me the value of team as well. And the team I had around me were incredible and irreplaceable. And um, I'm so excited. I'm going to be doing some some work for them with their workshops. And I've managed right. to, yeah, we raised over 80,000. We're, we're still got, I'm like the typical athlete thing. I'm like, I'm going to get to 100. Um, we're, <laughs> we're still got donations still coming Great. in. And Great. Um, yeah, it helps them implement their workshops which start from as young as school age and I think that's Mm. really important it's a sensitive topic for kids but the statistics are there and we need to start educating them in an appropriate way so Mm. I'm really excited to do some work with them Oh, Bonnie, you're amazing. I can't imagine the relationship you have with your body now, knowing your body was able to do these. I can't imagine the relationship you have with your mind, knowing how strong mentally you had to be to overcome everything you've you've just said. But to do what you did is just truly amazing. And we're all so proud of you and just in awe of what you've been able to do. If you could go back and tell your 10-year-old self anything, what would you go back and tell that little barefoot Bonnie running around Sawtell? It's it's such a cool question. I love that because, yeah, it's probably taken me all the way until this time to know just to listen to yourself and listen to that little voice inside you or that gut feeling that usually knows what's right for you. And there's going to be so many people in your life who have opinions and and you know sort of comments on all different sorts of things and that's great but just learn to filter and find out what's best for you as a person and if that's saying no that's not for me or you know walking away from something whatever it might be um, in the end you usually have the gut feeling that'll steer you in the right direction and it took Mm. me until this paddle I had plenty of people telling me not to do it I had plenty of people telling me you know, it was silly and expensive and dangerous. Mm. But I listened to that gut feeling and I'm so, so glad I did. I'll never, ever regret it. So I think little Bonnie used to doubt herself sometimes and there's a lot Mm. of things I probably didn't go for or I hesitated with. So listen to yourself because you know yourself the best. I love that. That's an awesome message. And you've sent an awesome message by doing what you've done over this past year incredible congratulations well done but most of all i feel so honored thank you so much for coming on on her game and sharing this story such a pleasure thanks so much Sam. 
On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer Lindsay Green, audio producer Nikki Sitch, executive producer Jennifer Goggins.